This time we'll excuse the kindergartners and first graders. If you would keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 3. As I said, we're in a series, it's our second series in Mark. What does it mean to follow Jesus? As I looked at this passage this week, I, I thought about uh, the story back in Daniel. You find it in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3. It's probably a fairly familiar story for you. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And we don't know if he remembers the dream or he's forgotten the dream, but the, what he wants is somebody to come and tell him what the dream is and then what the dream means. Of course, nobody can do that. And so if you can't do it, if you're part of that group of people who are supposed to know how to do those things and you can't, the consequence was you're going to be put to death. And so Daniel, who's been transported out of Judea up into uh, Babylon, is up there. And his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are with him. And so Daniel hears this edict that if you don't know what the vision is and then interpret it well, then you are killed. And so he goes back to his three friends and he says, let's pray together that God would reveal this vision to us. And sure enough, that night, Daniel receives the vision and an interpretation of the vision and then goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and says, I know what you were dreaming about and I can interpret the dream for you. And you remember what happened. He tells them what happens. It's about a great statue. Remember, it has different kind of metals, and then this stone or this rock comes from the ground. And um, it's true. And Nebuchadnezzar promotes Daniel into a place of authority, and then Daniel assigns or appoints Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to these very important places to govern or to rule. So that's sort of the backdrop that I was thinking about. And right after that event, right after these people were put in these very important, prominent places, this is what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar builds, remember, he builds this giant statue of himself. And what does everyone have to do? They have to bow down and worship that statue. Okay, so what's happening here is even though Daniel and his three friends are in this very prominent positions, they've been promoted to these very prominent positions, the very first battle for them, at least the way it's written in the text, is to say, do you really trust that I alone am God? Or is it somebody else like Nebuchadnezzar? Well, you know the story. Uh, they bring the statue before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they say, we're not going to bow down. Well, you're going to be thrown to the fire. Well, our God could save us from the fire, and even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. You see, they have to make this decision. Who's in control? They're standing, in some sense, at the edge of the furnace. And they have to say, who's really in control right here? Is it God or is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it somewhere else? And the reason I thought about this is when we look in Mark chapter 3, a very similar event is happening. We're, 
We've got these 12 disciples. Remember, Jesus has gone up to a mountainside. He's prayed all night. He's come back and he's appointing these 12 very unique people, these apostles. And he's saying, I've appointed you. I'm giving you a very unique designation. And then afterwards, they converge on the city of Capernaum, which is where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 3. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, and it's written on your outline, Neither father nor mother, neither wife nor child, neither nationality or tradition can protect a man at the moment of his call. It's Christ's will that he should be thus isolated and that he should fix his eyes solely upon him. See, this was, the, this was the challenge for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even though they had been appointed to a very powerful position, the very first thing that they got challenged by was, is Jesus, is God really God, or somebody else God? The disciples have been appointed to a very unique position, and they're coming back in Capernaum, and the very first challenge for them, is Jesus God? Or somebody else, God? Or who is Jesus, really? Well, when we think about this um, challenge, this isn't just a challenge for the first century disciple. It's a a challenge for the 21st century disciple. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to ask the question, who is he? And in the face of a furnace, you're going to have to keep walking, saying, I trust in the Lord. Let's set the scene. They've come back to Capernaum. There's these four different groups that are in Capernaum. One is that Jesus and the disciples are coming from some mountain that they've assigned the duty of apostle. They're coming from Capernaum. Capernaum has a big crowd of people, and they know all about Jesus because he's done all these miracles there. He's cast out demons, and whenever Jesus is coming to town, the whole town is very aware of it, and they get very excited. So Mark always says when they're coming to Capernaum, and you'll notice in the text, there's always a crowd of people around. That's the second group. Then you have a third group. You have his family coming from Nazareth. His mother, a few brothers, a sister, who doesn't really say, making the 30-mile journey from Nazareth to Capernaum. And then we have a fourth group coming down from Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is a city built on a hill, so you're always coming down from Jerusalem. And they're making, gosh, a 100-mile journey to Capernaum. And so here, all of these forces are coming on this one city. I think it's interesting that the two groups, his family and the scribes or the students of the scriptures, are the ones that could be considered the most closely related to Christ. I mean, the scribes know all about the Messiah. The family, where they've spent 30 years with Jesus, and yet the people that are closest to him are the ones that are the antagonists in the story. Mark does a good job of emphasizing the story by offering sort of a split screen. The first thing he does is says, okay, we've got something going on with the family. They've, they're coming. They've heard something about what Jesus has been doing. And what, what is their response? He's out of his mind. And then they, then Mark says, okay, let's go to another scene. Let's go to the scribes. And they have this long scene here. And then they go back and capture what the family has been talking about. So he's drawing this our attention and saying, well, who is he? Who is Jesus? What are the disciples going to do in the face of this challenge? You see, the disciples, 
They've just been named. And they're coming with Jesus. They've got to have all this energy, all this excitement. And they come into Capernaum. And then Jesus' own family. I mean, we've only known Jesus for a few months, maybe. And the family comes forward and says, he's out of his mind. Well, gosh, maybe the family knows him better than we do. And then they turn and see the scribes, the the people that really come from Ezra, the people who are writing down the law, the, the very important theological professors, so to speak, of the time. They're coming and they're saying that he's from Satan, the father of lies. You see what's happening? The disciples are coming down into Capernaum and here's what they're faced with. They've heard what Jesus has said about himself. Jesus has said, I've forgiven sins. I can forgive sins. Who alone but God can forgive sins? So Jesus is making this incredible claim that I am God. And the disciples are saying yes. And as soon as they get into the culture, what does the culture say? Oh, he's a lunatic. He's a liar. Or is he the Lord? See, they're faced with this furnace Which way are they going to decide? Who are they going to trust? The family of Jesus? The scribes? The theological thinkers? Or Christ? And I would suggest that this is a very common challenge to many of us. We see Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We've trusted in Jesus. But our family thinks that we're a little nutty. They may think you're out of your mind. Oh, don't be, don't go overboard. That's too much. I mean, you don't need all that. And and all the confidence that you had, you step into the life of your family and it just drains away. And you walk away going, well, who is Jesus? Do I really know? Or you're a college student and you've known all about Christ and then you come to the university and the professors of theology stand up and say, oh, he's not really God. And you go, gosh, well, you're smart. I mean, you're a lot smarter than I am. And so you must know something. And all the confidence that you had that Jesus Christ was the Lord begins to drain away. I never forget the story about a fairly well-known seminary. If I said the name, you would, most of you would know it. It sort of took, took in a turn in a bad direction. And in one of the Bible classes, the the professor of theology stood up and at the very first class, he said, do you believe in this? And of course, all the seminary students are going, yeah. And he threw it out the window, the Bible. That's a seminary. You see, we have the same kinds of challenges. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Is he a lunatic? He's just kind of out of his mind. Is he a liar? Who is he? What voice are you listening to? Who's determining that for you? See, that's, that's the challenge that the disciples are having at this point. And I don't think they just stumbled on this. I don't think Christ is going, oh gosh, I wish I hadn't brought him to Capernaum first. These guys aren't ready for it. He, he's the rabbi. He's the teacher. And see what he's saying? This is the foundational piece, guys. This is the one piece you always have to have in place. That I am the Lord God Almighty. 
And so the very first test, he really throws them into the deep end. Because you've got the family and you've got the theologian saying, no, he's something else. And he's looking at the disciples saying, what do you think? Am I who I say I am? Are you going to be listening? Is your head going to get turned by a professor? Is your head going to get turned by a family member? Or are you going to have your eyes fixed on Christ saying, I'm trusting in Christ alone? It's quite a challenge for the disciples. It's, it's quite a challenge for you and I. Let's look at one of the two responses. I ended up feeling like I had a sermon and a half today. So I'm going to give you one sermon today. And next week you'll get the half. All right. So let's look at the scribes and see how Jesus responds to the scribes. The scribes come and they have to admit that some unusual things have been happening. I mean, they just can't say these things didn't happen. Things have happened. Somebody who was paralyzed got up and walked. Demons got cast out of people and there were totally different people. There were incredible claims and they couldn't give Jesus power from God Almighty because then they'd have to bow down and worship him. So they attribute his power to Satan and they call him Beelzebul, which in... This term means the master of the house. See, what the Jewish scribes believed that there was some sort of satanic force, and that force was the master of this world. And Jesus is underneath the power of this world. He's, a, he's underneath the master of the house. And so they say he's from Satan. And I want to notice here, I think this will be important for us, how Jesus responds to this. Very interesting. He doesn't sort of get into this elementary back and forth where the Pharisees say, well, we think you're from Satan. And Jesus says, well, no, I'm not. Well, we think you are. Well, no, I'm not. It, it, it's not that kind of argument. I mean, that's not really a very fruitful argument when you're trying to make a case for Christ to say, well, I think he's your Lord. Well, no, he's not. Well, I think he is. I mean, you don't get very far on those kinds of things. And so he does something. He appeals to logic or he appeals to reason. And he does so by saying it in a story. He wants to let the scribes know by telling a story that their position is illogical. And he does it in what's called a parable. So let's look together. Mark chapter 3, he makes a statement, well, how can Satan cast out Satan? He's saying, I think this is illogical. I mean, if a kingdom was divided against itself, it couldn't stand. If a, if a house was divided against itself, it couldn't stand. You see, it's illogical. It's impossible for you to clean your own house. You can't pick yourself up by the neck and drag yourself out and kick yourself out. And then come back in and say, well, how did you get back in here? And you keep pulling yourself back out. That's illogical. It's, it's impossible for you to drag yourself out and keep yourself in at the same time. So he's appealing to their mind. He's just telling them a story. He's just kind of planting a little seed saying, see, guys, it couldn't be that. And I think that um, what's important here is Jesus right here doesn't say who he is. He just eliminates an option. See, that's a great way when you're beginning to talk to somebody about Christ to say, well, who do you think he is? Well, let's just see if we can eliminate that option. Let's begin to narrow down the choices 
of who Christ actually could be. And I'm not sure that he's not making an appeal actually to the crowd more so than he is the Pharisees. I mean, we don't know exactly. The text doesn't say. But I have this feeling that he's really appealing to the reason of the crowd. You see what's happening? There's this big crowd. It's so big, nobody else can get in. They can't even eat. And all these people have come together, and these hardened scribes, most of the time when you meet the Pharisees and the scribes, they're very hardened people. They're coming in, they're arguing this point, and Jesus is just sort of planting a seed. And maybe a seed in the concrete crack that might burst open, but more likely a seed in the crowd. Huh, boy, I've been thinking the scribes were right all this time. But you know what Jesus said? He's right. I mean, it's illogical. There's no way he could be from Jesus. And so when the crowd disperses, they just kind of go off in these little families on the walk home. What do you think about what the scribes said? What do you think about what Jesus said? They sit down over lunch. Well, what do you, you think about that? They just be, Jesus just begins to plant a seed. So when you're talking to somebody about Christ, maybe one objective for you is just to plant a seed. You're in a conversation with somebody, you don't know how many other people might be listening. If you're in your Philosophy 101 class, you don't know that you might be just planting a seed that the professor is never really going to respond to. But you don't know how many other people might be listening going, you know what? I think they were right. But you have to be able to stand up and know that Christ is Lord. You know, Lewis does this a great, does such a great job, and I printed it on the front of your bulletin. He makes this, he's trying to make a case for Christianity. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, it's well worth your reading at some point. And there's this idea that Lewis is trying to undermine. He's not necessarily making a case that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's mostly trying to eliminate options. I'm trying to prevent here, he says, anyone from saying the really foolish thing, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him as claim to be God. Now, how often do you hear that statement? Pretty frequently. And look at the case that Lewis says. The one thing we must, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, meaning I can forgive sins, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be, now look at the, the argument he uses, a lunatic, that's what the family was saying, on the level of a poached egg. He, or he would be the devil himself. That's what the scribes were saying. Those were two of the options. But you must not make this your choice. You must make this your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. You see how important that is? He's not necessarily saying who he is. He's just saying, let's think logically. Let's eliminate some of the possibilities here. And Lewis is trying to eliminate one of the possibilities and saying that Jesus Christ is just some great person. That's not possible. The other thing I want to notice here is uh, the third parable, that Jesus does make some very profound statements about himself. It's very short. The first little parable is about a kingdom, 
in verse 24. The second little parable is about a house in verse 25. And then in verse 27, Jesus says this, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is using this third little story, and he is saying something about himself. Let's see if we can pick this up. In the New Testament, Satan is pretty much seen as the prince of the world, someone who owns the world. You remember when Jesus comes and he's in the the place of temptation, and Satan takes him up to this high place and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world? Satan's over all the kingdoms of the world, and I can give these things to you? He's the person who's ruling the world. He's the master of this house. And this is what Jesus says. If somebody if somebody's casting Satan out of his house, which is what's been happening in this previous these previous chapters, then a couple of things have happened. Number one, and this is what he's saying about himself, not directly, but through the story. Somebody from outside has entered into the house. you believe that? Somebody from outside has entered into the world. He's planting that little seed in the crowd. The person who's entered from the outside is stronger than the person who currently owns the home. And thirdly, the purpose for entering The house is to plunder the house. Somebody has entered from the outside into this world. The person who has entered is stronger than that which rules the world. And the purpose is to take, to pluck, to plunder, to say, no, this is mine. No, this is mine. I'm taking this. I'm taking all these things with me. Who is that person? Well, the crowd gets to decide. Jesus doesn't say, and it's me. He just says, why don't you go home? Why don't you think about these things as you walk along? Why don't you sit down over lunch and say, now he's talking about a strong man. Was he talking about himself or he's talking about somebody else? He lets that sort of just bubble up in their minds and say, who do you think? And of course, the disciples are there are saying, now, who do we think? You see, they're, they're, they're faced with what the family has to say. They're faced with what the theological professors have to say. They're faced with what Jesus is having to say. And they're going to have to take a stand. It's the foundational piece for the disciples. So Jesus is planning that in their minds. And one of the reasons he's planning it in their minds, and you'll see this later in Matthew chapter 16, Remember this, we come back to this pretty frequently. Jesus is taking the disciples again on another road trip. And they go to Caesarea Philippi. Remember this? And all in Caesarea Philippi, there's incredible idol worship. And Jesus kind of stands on the stage with all the other idols and he asks this very important question. Who do you say that I am? You see, it's the same question that's happened right at the very beginning of the ministry because that's the foundation. Who is Jesus? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then what what does Jesus say? On this rock, this statement, 
I'm going to build my house, the church. And then what does he say? And the, the gates of hell will not prevail. So what is he asking his disciples to do? You've got to be a strong man. You now have to enter a strong man's house. You're going to be my agent for plundering the strong man's house. You have to beat at the front door of the strong man's house. That's the call for the church. And when I think about that, my first thought is terror. Oh my goodness, how am I going to do something like that? I feel fine in here talking about it, but when I go and start beating on the gates of hell, I'm a little bit more nervous about what I might meet when I walk in. And the one reason I'm nervous is because I feel like I'm going to have to go on my own strength. And see, that's the one thing I cannot do. I cannot go on my own strength. I can only make it by the strength of the power of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. Remember, Jesus says this in uh, John chapter 17. He says this. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, that you protect them from the evil one. Why? They've entered the house. John 17. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. What name? Give me that name. I want that name. That's the name I'm going to enter the front door with. And what does Jesus say? The name you gave me. You see, you can't enter the house without the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's not just the foundation. That's the whole building. So I want us to remember the magnitude here of what's happening right here in Mark chapter 3 and maybe happening in your own life. You have a situation and it's causing your head to turn away from Christ. It could be a painful situation and you just don't think that Christ is involved anymore. Or he's not strong enough to overcome the situation. And Satan is using that to get your head off of Christ you have a family. They think you're a little strange or maybe out of your mind. And you're trying to not have your head turned by them. You're trying to focus on Christ. You have a neighbor, a smart neighbor. You have a professor, a seminary professor. And they're trying to get your head turned off of Jesus Christ. This is the same thing that's happening to disciples. And you and I cannot go forward in following Christ if we don't have the foundation laid and stand on that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is who He says He is. Well, the disciples have to decide here. They don't have a great track record through a good bit of the Gospels, as you'll know. But they filter out in twos and threes. You're here. You're going to filter out in twos and threes. What do you think? Is Jesus Christ who he says he is? Or do you trust what your family says? Or do you trust what your professor said? Do you trust what your neighbor said? Do you trust what comes up in your own mind? Or do you trust in what Christ himself has said? That's where we start. 
That's where we end on who Jesus Christ is. Now, let me say in sort of a wrap up these two things. Jesus offers an incredible encouragement here at the end of his talk with the scribes or with the crowd and a pretty ominous warning. Verse 28 says this. Truly, I say to you, it might say in yours uh, version, I tell you the truth. If you remember the old King James version, verily, verily, I say unto you, remember that? Kind of speak. Well, this is the word in the Greek. The word in the Greek is amen. Find that fascinating. I might say something great up here and what's going to happen at the end if I do? Said or thought, amen, Paul, just keep saying that's what I want you to say. That's the truth. That's right. I'm affirming that statement. What does Jesus say? Before he makes the statement, he's affirms the statement. Amen. Well, I guess if he's going to say amen before he says it, he wants you to lean in and make sure you get this part. I'm amening myself before I say it. And so Jesus says, amen. I'm I'm going to tell you a truth. Everybody lean in. Don't miss this part. And this is what he says. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Please don't miss that part. Amen. All sins. See, because you could, be, you could have been at this point in this sermon saying, I'm just such a terrible disciple. Every time the furnace comes up, I'm turning the other way. Every time there's a problem, I cave in at every argument. I just, I just can't find it. Amen. Pay attention. All sins will be forgiven. Even if you blaspheme against God himself. Even if you're Peter. I wonder if Peter remembers this later in his life. Even if you deny Christ. Amen. All sins. What an incredible encouragement. What an incredible encouragement if you're sitting here and you don't know Christ. And one of the reasons you haven't come to him is you think, you don't know me, Paul. You, you don't know the kinds of stuff I've done. Amen. You're right, I don't. But amen. It's been forgiven. Because of what Christ has done. What an incredible encouragement. What we tend to get stuck on is the warning. I'm not saying it's not a big warning, but I want us to hear that encouragement. And here's the warning. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had been saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, we could spend a whole service on this, but... This is the idea of not some frivolous statement you said somewhere back in your youth. That you should just be biting your nails over every moment of your life now thinking I've made some sort of eternal sin. This is something you say over and over to the point of a hardening that you you can't repent of it anymore. You're so locked in. Now, I don't know who that person is. I've seen some people who look pretty locked in that have made commitments to Christ. But Christ knows. 
that you can just begin to deny him one little small step at a time to where your heart gets so hard that you never go back. You don't recover in this life. And what is Jesus saying? There's no second chance. It's not like when you die, you go, oh, gosh, I've got now this all this new information. That's it. You're guilty of a sin that you've committed today that carries all the way through eternity. That's a pretty stiff warning. And I want you to know who he's saying it to here. He's saying it to the religious people. He's not just saying it to ignorant people who don't know very much about Christ. He's saying it to people who thought about Christ and said, no, he's not that person. No, he's not that person. He can't be that person. And you can get to a place in your life that you're so hard, you never turn back around. So I don't know if that's where you sit today. I want you to hear this warning. I want you to hear the encouragement. Amen. It's not, it's not just for these special people. All sins, whoever would repent and come to Christ. This is where we are in our lives. You have these different voices in your head and they come from your family or they come from your professor. And then you have the voice, the still, small voice of the Lord. Who am I? What do you think? In the face of the furnace, are you going to be willing to step forward and proclaim Christ? Let's pray. Lord, all of us are here as failures, not as success stories. No success stories here. All sins, even blasphemy, can be forgiven. So we cling to you. Lord, you have entered from another dimension. You're stronger than the evil that we see in this world. And you've come to claim people as your own. And you're calling out. And I pray for those people who have yet to respond, that they would use this day to respond. They wouldn't wait. Their heart might harden. Lord, thank you for your word that teaches us, that guides us, that turns our head back to you. What a great gift. You've given so much. And here at this moment of worship, the offering, I pray, Lord, that how we use what you give us would be to further your kingdom, to turn the heads of people away from the world and towards your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.